You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! check okay was that was that on your end yeah it was saying this meeting is being yeah, yeah okay weird i'll clip this anyway hello welcome to matt meets the music industry today i'm here with a old friend of mine dan reagan of feet first management how are you dan i'm all good despite uh what month 15 of lockdown you're, you're feeling okay month 15 of lockdown i feel okay Luckily, I've been able to escape when needed, so I'm all good. Yeah, and so you've had quite a hectic lockdown um, because you had an Epica record come out, and that's sort of one of your bigger things. What was that experience like? That was one of the least hectic things I had during the okay. COVID period. The most hectic part was just the start. Um, the start when you are in the middle of tours happening, of middle of the tours kicking off, and everything shutting down. And losing tens of thousands of euros on non-refundable flights and visa costs and all that fun stuff. Yeah. How did you weather that? Because you had quite a, quite a bit going on at that point uh take the hit yeah nothing else you can do about it it's like take the hit move on and definitely don't dwell on it yeah some costs because that is something that i feel happens too much on this COVID period people taking the victim role and not being proactive sure so how you and I have talked a little bit during COVID. How were you working on being proactive throughout this? Just changing your business model. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's just taking or changing the business model and just more focusing on the albums, on merchandise, on other, in other income streams. What did that translation look like? How long did that take you? And how did all the bands take it? Every band takes it different, uh, differently. So some are road warriors, so they're learning to be at home, and some had it as a welcome break. Okay. So they all take it uh, take it differently. Yeah, and it's. It's just interesting to kind of look at, you know, one of the things I've seen is artists really struggling with the mindset shift of, oh, now we're not making money playing shows anymore. 
even if they can like intellectually understand something, I feel like that shift in mindset of like, oh, now, no, now I'm selling merch all day on the internet has been kind of tricky for them. Have you kind of had a similar experience? Mm -hmm. um, some are happy to be with their families. So they're enjoying the time at home. Some are financially struggling and some are, aren't full-time musicians. So they focus more on their normal jobs. Okay. Okay. No, I just was sort of curious well, how, how things were, were operating on your end on that level. It, it's, I've postponed like 350 to 400 shows till now. And oh, you, yeah. just get, you, you just get used to it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so funny because I feel like that week of like March 11th, I feel like before that in my life, I'd canceled like three tours. And in that week, I was canceling like three a day. Postponing. Canceling, we have to give tickets back. Postponing, tickets stay valid. Right. Right. And how has, how have you perceived some of the reactions to postponing versus canceling? Uh, postponing versus canceling. Like some acts, they can't cancel because they, I had a band that, that did one date of their, or two dates of their tour and then poop 30,000 down the drain. Yeah. And they don't have the financial situation that they can cancel the tour. Other ones uh, just took the hit uh, and postponing versus canceling. Uh, when you postpone, they have a chance to get their ticket back and you don't have to start from zero. So mm -hmm. consumers can ask for the ticket back if they want it in their, in the window. Uh, so it's better. I feel it's better to postpone than to start all over again. The people, if yeah. they want to get their money back, they'll get their money back. Yeah. Don't know if they get the service charges from Ticketmaster back, but they get the ticket price back. Do they get the ticket? Do they get the Ticketmaster stuff back? I don't know. I didn't uh, get any refunds. Okay. I, I was like, you know, like like we said earlier, sunk costs, right? Like you can't. Uh, I realize that that money is probably better in someone I respect's pocket than mine. Live Nation. <laughs> what? Live Nation. I don't know. Like I didn't ask for any refunds. I didn't really do that research. I know. Live Nation. Okay. Um, okay, so you and I had initially bonded over um, a shared love of hardcore. And you kind of come out of that scene in the in the nineties. Yep. Um, you know, was that your entry point to heavy music in general? And how did that kind of turn into management? It probably it turned from punk rock into New York hardcore into nineties hardcore and I think the biggest thing that I got from there is just the attitude and the music theory that is partly there and that I build it further upon. It's coming from do it yourself. Uh, and at a certain point, a band gets too big to do it yourself. And then you form it into decide it yourself but keep the DOI mindset. 
and it's like you need to grind, you need to work, you need to, or you're not too good for anything and just keep grinding. Yeah. How, but how did, how did you personally start managing from there? Uh, how I start, start managing is managing your friend's band. Um, and just told them, don't expect that much. I'm new to this shit. And it just rolled on from there. And then you start with a small band and you start on a bigger band and another bigger band. And you just roll into the management world. Sure. At what point did you sit there and go, oh, wow, we like really, I really have something happening here. Like this is no longer just like booking shows for my friends. I never booked shows, managed. Yeah, but you, you know what I mean? Like, at what point did it go from, oh, hey, I'm helping my friends with whatever to, oh, wow, so this is like an actual job that I could do and like feed my family with? When I got opportunity to manage a band that was way above my level and just deep diving. Mm -hmm. It's like they were on tour with the police uh, when they called me if I wanted to manage them. And I was like, oh, shit. And it was just deep diving. And, and I was so insecure when I started and lacking knowledge that I just read, read, read and studied. Having a management job, a label management job and reading and sleeping for hours a night for like a year. Yeah. And then you see, and then you see at the same time, being a lower level manager with a bigger band and everything or jumping on or jumping on it. uh, How many rats there are in the music industry? Yeah. Just trying to lie in your fucking face. And back then I was insecure and I did not trust it. But if they would tell me some of those comments nowadays, I would literally tell them to go fuck themselves. It's like I had a publisher who offered a advance of 10,000 for a band who would recoup that in a few days. And then like, well, after you've signed the deal and you've recouped, we can look at another advance. And it's like, dude, if you sign, you're not gonna get another advance. And those little tricks. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's funny because I had sort of a similar situation happen. Uh, not quite at the same scale, I don't think, but when I was 19, a band who was blowing up sort of picked me up to be their manager and it turned into a similar thing of like, oh, guess I'm, guess I'm here now. And it's, it's scary when that happens and it's weird. How did you handle that like in your head? Go for it. Okay. <clears throat> it was just learning a lot about publishing <clears throat> and just 
touring a lot with the band and just learning as you go. Mm -hmm. So publishing was a focus for you even that early on? Yeah. What, because uh, I feel like publishing is so often like the, uh, the arcane music business art. Um, what attracted you to it? It's just pure math. Sure. <clears throat> it's just pure the math behind it. I haven't found the logic in it yet, but I do understand the math in it. What do you mean? Um, sometimes it's illogical as, uh, sometimes illogical. Let's say your band performs uh, in Colombia you have to pay the withholding, um, you have to pay the local collecting society 32% uh, overhead costs. Then they're going to deduct another 15%. Then it leaves Colombia. Then your local collecting society takes another bit. And then you end up with 50% left in your hand. For people who just, the only thing they do is left hand pick up the money give it to the right hand give it to the next person in europe gives it to the artist and that you lose 50 percent on that yeah don't so understand you, the logic it's um it's definitely frustrating to watch it's illogical maybe sometimes corrupt probably pretty often corrupt in my eyes. And then you've got <clears throat> the publishers who play the game along. I do understand the publishers more, but I feel if artists, if you sign one, if you sign one publishing contract, you're fucked for the rest of your career. Yeah. That makes sense. So how do you approach publishing deals for artists? All my artists have or have signed the first publishing deal, so you already need to carve or work with what is on the table, and then you're looking at a publisher. But I normally work on <clears throat> short-term deals that end after two years that you can always are flexible to change. You're not stuck in any situation, and if they do a good job, they can keep doing their job. That makes sense. So you were talking about the amount you were studying early on in your career. And I know um, for a long time, you were like a champion chess player. Yep. Can you tell me about that? And, and then did that impact your ability to study later on? Uh, chess, <clears throat> chess is all making sense, making the right moves and strategy. And I think the same goes with touring, releases, publishing. It's all about strategy. Not overplaying, making the right timelines, doing the right tours. It's, you need to have a good product and I trust my artists with that. And once the product is right, it's, it comes to my plate for the strategy and the execution of it. Sure. So to you, it's almost an analog between chess and like music business strategy, whatever. 
I would just say it in life. But that comes, I still play way too much chess. How much chess are you playing these days? Uh, 15 games a day or so. Blitz or what? Uh, Blitz is five minutes and longer. I think Blitz is, depending on your definition, I think in America, Blitz is normally five minutes. And what is three minutes? I think that might also be Blitz or like Super Blitz or something. I, I used to know all these, the breakdown, but what, what, how many minutes are you playing aside? Three, mi three, mi or three minutes a person a game. Okay. What's your, uh, where are you playing? What's your rating? Uh, Chess.com, it is roughly 1850. Okay. So you're somewhere pretty, you know, pretty reasonable as it were. Yeah. What attracts you to Blitz Chess? over um other uh, other variants add i don't have patience for longer games <laughs> sure 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 no it's just it's just funny to me because i feel like add is not something you associate with a lot of chess players yes you do because you always in add have the hyper focus sure and a lot of the chess players are on spectrum and use their hyperfocus. Sure. And that, that was always sort of something I felt when I was playing chess a lot more seriously, that was something I felt had really helped me along was, and I see it, you know, later on now where I'm like reading a contract and having that ability to sort of drill in and ask, you know, because it, it's, especially when you're, you know, um, one of the smaller players reading that contract and you need to like find errors. It's definitely a scary I, thing and the hyper-focus definitely helps. Contracts, how more, how more we, or how more we progress, how more transparent they get. I would agree. And I feel contracts now compared to 15 years ago are much more transparent. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? I think partly the quality of management and just the overall quality of work in the music industry has gone up. Artists are smart, smart or I feel are more educated, more focused on the career, more focused on the business side. Um, and other labels, they know as well, you can't fuck a band because then those just be annoying, irritating, unhappy, non-productive. A happy artist is a happy band, is a happy label. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no, there's and no more margin. To hide. It's no, it's supposed to be fair. It's not like the band gets ten percent royalty and everything needs to get recouped on their ass. It just needs to be fair contracts. And nowadays, you can also just do it yourself. And you weren't able to do that twenty years ago. It, it <clears throat> you can upload it yourself for digital distribution. You've got sixty percent of your market covered. It's like, it's not like it used to be, yeah, you can press it yourself and maybe get some 
attempt of distribution, one upload and you covered 60% of the market. Yeah. Um, when, when you're a manager with your level of resources, why don't you just have all your bands form their own labels? Manpower. Okay. It's like, it's like you, you go into a partnership with the label. They have the expertise, they have the manpower and they have the investment. And to get that, you give a part of your royalties to the label or the label can think you get a part of the royalties, depends how you look at it. Okay, no, that makes sense. Labels is our service provider or turning more into a service provider. And why hire it yourself and educate people when there's a lot of talent out there already working with the record labels? No, I feel the same way. I just wanted to kind of get your uh, get your take. I definitely feel like I always I always say like working with putting out a record on your own is a is a great idea until you have to actually do it, and then it just turns into good. like. Just think yeah, when it but... comes to Latin America or Latin America uh, marketing and promotion, it gets to, or just Europe getting hiring all your independent promoters, having to supervise that. It's it's a lot of fucking work. Yeah, it's not fun. No, so that's why you work with a label. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I just wanted to kind of clarify that situation as it were it's going back to the beginning of our conversation it's turned into a or the business model i work with still is decided yourself you can go for a label yes or no and you just decided together with your artist yeah i think that's um i think that's key in a way people don't necessarily understand When you're look when you're looking at artists to pick up as clients, you know, which I know is kind of a very selective process. What what goes through through your head to make an artist desirable for a roster like yours, where everyone is a pretty high level touring band? They're all actually all of my artists. The basis is some 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 sort of friendship. It's like our last artist I took along insomnium. I know for like six years already. So it was more they got into a shitty situation, and they really needed a cleanup. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And that's I offer offer them just to clean up and let them look for a manager and just take them a little bit under my wing just to clean up the mess and from one thing to another I thought they were going to sign to another management which was fine with me and then out of nowhere a few months later like yeah we need to con continue our conversation I was like oh okay I'm not somebody who goes aggressively after bands it, the click totally. needs to be there the trust needs to be there 
And that is the basis of a future working relationship. Yeah, it's, I mean, I would agree. I think it's the only, I think when you don't have that friendship basis, everything gets really, things can get weird quickly. Yeah, because I, with my artists, I more have a father figure role yeah. than, than being the boss. Yeah. How long did it take you to come to terms with that? And how did you come to terms with that? I still haven't come to terms with that. Because part of them are older than me. I'm just like, okay. Sure. So I haven't come, come to terms to that. Okay. No, that, that, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, has becoming a father yourself helped your management in that way? No. <laughs> Getting a child has just made me a lot more aggressive in doing business. Because I'm not Why? doing it for, um, it's, I'm not doing it for the fun anymore. I have to raise a child and be financially responsible for my child. And I don't have time for bullshit or doing stuff for fun. Sure. You just execute much faster. And for me, it's given me a whole drive. That's kind of awesome. It is, yeah. If I'll do anything for my son and make his life as good as I can for him. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, that level of dedication is admirable. Mm -hmm. When you talk about getting more aggressive on deals, you know, because now you're trying to really start to crank for on behalf of your son. What does oh, no, that look it, like? It's not all, all on behalf of my son. I'm not doing it anymore for long live the fun. As long as I can pay my rent and food, it's all fine. I just sure. want to have a good time. It's more like this, that, that, that. Much more structured, much more focused. Yeah. But when you talk about dealing more aggressively, what it does that mean to you? Just being more direct to the point no time for the fluffy, fluffy bullshit. Okay, that's fair. And I think that's important because the industry is full of that. There's a lot of fluff. How do you cut through that? Cut the bullshit. I'm Dutch, so by nature, we are direct com communicators. Yeah, of course. It's, it's just got a little bit more. No, that, no, that makes sense. No, I, I just think it's just interesting to me because I'll see artists who I'm friends with, who I really respect, you know, who are either successful or they have real jobs, you know, and are successful in those. And they still get kind of pulled into a lot of this bullshit surprisingly regularly. And I just wonder like, how do you teach people to like avoid that and avoid getting pulled into the endless scams that pollute my inbox at least? Surround yourself with a team you can trust and stay away from people you don't trust. Okay. Or who don't share your vision in the music industry or those kinds of matters. Yeah. No, of course. I just, uh, 
you know, I, I just, I'm always sort of curious about the, the, the reasons why people do things the way they do them, you know, um, everybody, everybody's different. Everybody has his own vision, uh, principles, norms, and approach. So what is your vision with Feet First in 10 years? <clears throat> Continue building my bands to the next level. I think we'll never be done. It is get your, ba or get your bands as far up as I can. And hopefully get or hopefully get some baby bands for a assistant to build on under my supervision and help give my knowledge to the next generation. Yeah. If I'm not, not getting too old and out of touch with the market. Of course. And that was sort of that 10 year thing was sort of something I wanted to talk to you about is you know, you manage Epica who are, if not the biggest metal band of their generation, top five. In the symphonic genre, they're one of the leading bands. Yeah. And I feel like there's not a lot of other metal bands where the singer is, you know, not old that have you the got, audience they have. You've the got Nightwish. Like, You've got Nightwish, you've got With Imputation. Yeah, but but still, like you're in a, a pretty rarefied place is my point. And I guess mm -hmm. my question is like, with sort of the 80s bands like seriously hitting a point where things are going to start to wrap up soon, like I don't think we're going to have Iron Maiden in 10 years the way we'll have Epica in 10 years. I think then there will be the, the, the turn for the Sabatons, the Epica, the Power Wolves. Yeah, that's my question. Is like, do you think about it in that terms? Like, oh, Epica could be doing the Iron Maiden type thing in 15 years? No. Okay. Because what it is with Iron Maiden, it's like I could see Epica or these bands doing that in 20 years. Uh, or in 15 to 18 years, but not in 10 years. Sure. Because all big artists really get big when the nostalgia factor hits in. Right. And they'll be begin 40s, 45. Uh, don't think the nostalgia will hit in then. That makes sense. Because if you look at Iron Maiden, they've been doing stadium tours for arena tours for 30 years now. Um, yeah, something like that. So you need to first have 30 years experience doing arenas to get to the level they are now. Yeah, absolutely. And that was another time. That was when MTV was still supportive of this type of music. Sure, but I, I think you don't really, I mean, in my eyes, that you don't really need that to be an arena band now. Like you don't necessarily, because of how selective audiences can be and how they find out about things. 
I think it, MTV was a chance to discover bands. Totally. And, and I think now with internet and the amount of bands and the amount of channels, it is much more difficult for something to stick compared to a one-channel communication. I agree. So I do think it had had its benefits back then. 100%. You know, I think you look at thrash metal is especially guilty of this. You have bands that had a song on MTV for like a month. <laughs> They're still touring, playing like third to five to 500 people a night. Mm-hmm. And that's crazy. That was the effect of back then. Yeah. Absolutely. As we head towards um, the end, do you have any sort of final words of wisdom or philosophies you want to share? No. Do you have any questions? I mean, I think we're hitting all the points I wanted to hit. Cool. Then uh, we have it all covered. Thank you so much. Cool. Then uh, I'll check you later, dude. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.